0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled House Rules for Innovative Therapy in Multiple Myeloma, Guidance on Integrating Monoclonal Antibodies and BCMA and Non-BCMA Options into Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DFQ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, and welcome to House Rules for Innovative Therapy in Multiple Myeloma, Guidance on Integrating Monoclonal Antibodies, BCMA, and Non-BCMA Options into Patient Care. My name is Dr. Bob Orlowski from the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. It's a great honor for me to welcome a number of wonderful colleagues, including Dr. Suzanne Lynch from the Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Dr. Jeffrey Zonder from the Carmanos Cancer Institute in Detroit, and my great colleague from MD Anderson, Dr. Krina Patel, who will be part of the session. Our focus today is going to be on the movement of antibodies and antibody-based platforms into all aspects of myeloma care, from the management of newly diagnosed disease to relapsed and heavily refractory and pretreated patients. Throughout our discussion, we'll use cases and also group discussions to achieve a consensus on issues such as use of CD38 quadruplets, antibody platforms in early relapse, and the use of BCMA as well as non-BCMA by specific options. During the program, we will periodically share several resources summarizing take-home messages from our discussion So please do take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. Let's begin. Here's an overview of some of the progress in antibodies starting in 2015 that has really enhanced outcomes for myeloma patients. Over on the left, you can see that the CD38 antibody daratumumab and the SLAMF7 antibody elotuzumab were originally approved in 2015. Then later in 2020, there were approvals in combinations, as well as subcutaneous dosing of daratumumab and the initial approval of isatuximab, which is the second anti-CD38. Later in 2021, there were expanded approvals for isatuximab. And we did have the first approval of a BCMA antibody drug conjugate, Belantamab mafidotin We'll get back to that a little bit later. And then most recently in 2022, there was approval of the first bispecific antibody, teclistamab which binds both BCMA and CD3. And we're expecting that this year there may be additional BCMA bispecifics approved, as well as possibly a non-BCMA targeted bispecific. Despite all of this progress with newer therapies, there are multiple challenges remaining in delivering effective treatment to myeloma. And this slide shows you some of the areas where there are still unmet medical needs. For example, one study of 22,000 patients with myeloma who were not eligible for transplant showed that 57% of them received only one line of therapy, which means we better make that line count. And among almost 2,800 patients who did get stem cell transplant, 21% received only one line of therapy, which again means that we need better frontline as well as second line therapies to be available. In later disease lines, including multi-refractory disease, we know that outcomes are very poor. These are data from the mammoth study showing patients that were either not triple refractory or triple and quad refractory or penta refractory and you can see that even among the people who were not triple refractory but had received prior CD38 antibodies to which they were refractory, their outcome in terms of survival was only about one year. And if you were triple or quad or penta refractory, those numbers went downward further, suggesting that we really need new treatment options for these folks. So these are our goals today, which are to enhance your understanding of the evidence for antibody platforms in myeloma, sharpen your skills for integrating established and emerging antibody platforms into your treatment plans, including monoclonal antibodies against BCMA and non-BCMA targets, and also to provide you with some guidance on addressing the unique safety considerations associated with antibody-based therapy. The first section is entitled, as you can see, Achieving a Consensus on the Role of Upfront Antibody Platforms. And we'll start with a case just to kind of guide our discussion. And the case is that of Mark, who's a 68-year-old patient with symptomatic ISS stage 2 myeloma, has standard risk cytogenetics, pretty healthy and a good performance status, and somebody who is willing to pursue aggressive treatment. So let's sort of open this up to the panel. Would induction therapy followed by transplant be the go-to option here, or can transplant be deferred? That's always a hot topic. Maybe I'll ask Dr. Lynch to start off on that.
2: Yeah, Bob, thank you so much for that question. Um, indeed, there are a lot of discussions, but I think based on the latest data, which we received also from the determination trial, I think there's still a role for stem cell transplant. Um, it's very hard to show overall survival benefit of myeloma trials, which we started in the last five years or last 10 years because we have so many more treatments. So I think it might be difficult really to see an overall survival benefit for this transplant trial. But the fact that most of the transplant trials, including the determination trials, show the benefit of the PFS and deeper remissions in terms of MLD would really, um, I would say, give me enough, enough justification to still proceed this stem cell transplant for newly diagnosed patients in good shape.
1: So, Dr. Patel, you were a transplanter in a previous incarnation would you favor that? Or maybe because overall survival was the same and salvage transplants probably work just as well. Is it okay to defer transplant, especially if you've got a standard risk patient who achieves, let's say, MRD negativity?
3: Yeah, great question. I did switch over though for a reason. Um, But I I do think that transplant, as of right now, the evidence shows that most patients who are eligible should go through transplant. Um, we know that patients who get deeper responses, MRD negativity, you know, um, um, they tend to do better. Their PFS is better, and that usually means better quality of life. Having said that, though, you know, I do have some patients that are either can't go to transplant even though they're healthy enough. Um, because they can't get caregivers, they can't take off from work. Um, The insurance they have is based on them working and they can't do it. Um, And so I do think that if someone has standard risk disease, um, they've had a phenomenal response with their induction. You know, we have a long discussion about the evidence, Um, And I do try to at least get their cells collected if they really can't go to transplant. Um, I think it's harder to get patients in second line to transplant sometimes. um, But because, as you saw, not everybody gets the second line of treatment. Um, But I do think that it's appropriate for for a certain patient population.
1: So, Dr. Zonder, would you think this patient is a candidate for a CD38 antibody-containing quadruplet? I mean I, I do
4: think uh that that could be added um you know we have data from the uh Griffin trial which uh, tells us that uh adding uh daratumumab uh, to standard therapy before and after transplant uh improves outcomes so um you know the the endpoints um that our other panelists were discussing uh complete responses uh you know, deep MRD negative responses, the chances of achieving those endpoints are actually even higher if you include a CD38 antibody. And I tend to include uh, uh, one, I, I tend to use a, a CD38 quad uh, regimen, at least for induction. Um, I, I would say in my own practice, at least, that my, my use of uh, uh, a CD38 antibody as part of maintenance therapy is a lot more variable.
1: Very good. And if high-risk features were present, so this patient started with standard risk, but let's say they've got biallelic deletion of 17P, how would that change what you do? And let's go back to Dr. Lynch first.
2: Yeah. Um, Bob, that's a very difficult question. And we argue for us on Beck whether the addition of a CD38 monoclonal antibody in high-risk patient is really beneficial. Um, there are several studies and I will present some data, you know, on the Griffin trial and high risk patients. Um, let's say it this way. If I truly have a high risk patients, I substitute Velcade by Cafilzumib. So those patients I give KRD, usually I add, you know, a Daratumumab or a CD38, uh, Um, because I'm not sure whether we can really omit Daratumumab in those high risk patients. Um, but it's a questionable, kind of, you know, approach.
1: And then CD38 Maintenance, Dr. Patel, you heard Dr. Zonder say he's not a huge fan yet. What do you think about it?
3: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, if I have high risk patients, again, similar to what Dr. Lunch said, you know, CV38, we, we always have, um, discussions if, if it helps or not. Um, but I want to do more for my high risk patients. So if I can't do a PI, and um, Len, I will use CV38 and Len, um, for, for high risk. For standard risk, kind of with the Cassiopeia data, that if you've gotten, you know, DARE up front, do you really need it in maintenance or not, or is it going to potentially lead to more, you know, toxicity like infections, hypogamma? Um, I, you know, I think we need more data, so I don't, I don't necessarily do it for everybody.
1: And then, if this patient had been older, let's say seventy-five years, and a little bit more frail, with diabetes and emphysema, and maybe performance status a little bit worse. Dr. Zonder, what would you do for this person? Triplet, quadruplet, and if triplet, which one? I, I think what we're, we're
4: getting at with this presentation is that this is probably somebody who will never be going to transplant. This isn't a fit older patient. This isn't a less fit older patient. And so you're you're trying to you know um, uh, lead with a regimen that's uh, something which could likely be given on a long-term basis. Um, I mean, I think there are several options. Uh, I think uh, VRD certainly remains an option, DRD remains an option, and Dara VRD is is an option. And I guess that you know the the, the frailty uh, becomes uh, a real factor in the decision making. In my own opinion, um, probably the best tolerated of those options would be DRD, um, uh, less neuropathy. Um, you know, I, 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 I like that regimen a lot for, for a frail patient, um, you know, who, who isn't, isn't headed to transplant. But I don't think it could fault anybody who, who, who used any of the, the three that I mentioned, to be honest.
1: Gotcha. And Dr. Lynch, uh, what about these comorbidities here? Does the diabetes and pulmonary disease, does that sway you in terms of using a CD38 antibody, yay or nay?
2: Yeah, I mean, the CD38 monoclonal antibodies are well-tolerated, and usually our patients during induction therapy do very well. I have a little bit of problem to treat patients, especially frail patients, indefinitely with a CD38 monoclonal antibody. Just remember, normal plasma cells and malignant plasma cells, as long as they express CD38, will be wiped out. So there's hypogamma globulinemia. You have to give IVIG. So I'm I'm not sure that I really fully buy that concept of indefinitely giving a CD38 monoclonal antibody for maintenance. Sometimes we have to if patients do not tolerate, for instance, an IMIT and um, in, in, in proteasome inhibitor. Um, but I would really tend to limit the time and looking for MRD negativity or deep remission in order to find an endpoint of the maintenance treatment with daratumumab.
1: And maybe this will be a good time to make a shameless plug for the upcoming SWOG study for frail patients, which is VRD light induction followed by R maintenance in one arm, DRD induction followed by R maintenance in the second arm, and then DRD induction followed by DR maintenance in the third arm that in part Christine Yee is leading. So let me turn things over to Dr. Lynch, and she can go through some of the data on newly diagnosed myeloma regimens.
2: Perfect. Uh, Thank you so much. So after our discussion, let's see what are the guidelines and what are the studies that would support our decisions. And what I show you here is the NCCN guidelines for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients for patients who are in good shape and transplant candidates. You can see, according to the NCCN guidelines, bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone is the preferred regimen in combination with, sorry, not in combination, but in addition to carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dex. Again, I would use carfilzomib um, in especially high-risk patients. Other recommended regimens are daratumumib, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dex, daravirid, also in addition, daravtd darakird, and Dara cyclophosphamide VD, dara D. So the inclusion of antibody quadribles represent a new development, but what is the evidence of this option? So in here, I would like to show you data from the GRIFFIN trial. I think Dr. Patel already mentioned that. So the GRIFFIN trial compared DARA-RVD versus RVD, and it also included a two-year maintenance. And what it shows is that the responses deepen over the time with DARA-RVD including the 24 months of maintenance. And you can see that very nicely after two years of maintenance in the DARA RVD arm, you have a complete remission rate of 82 percent. And compare this with a complete remission rate of 61 percent in the VRD arm. So the addition of DARA really increases your complete remission rate after two years of maintenance by 20 percent, which is significant. Also looking for the MRD negativity in the GRIFFIN trial. So there was a robust MRD responses and progression-free survival outcome with DARA-RVD compared to RVD alone without DARA. You can see that the sustained MRD negativity at six months was increased from 15% to 48% uh, when patients received DARA-RVD. Also that was a sustained MRD negativity because when we look for 12 months, uh, 13% of MLD negativity in the RVD arm increases to 44 in the Dara RVD arm. On the right-hand side, you see the progression-free survival, which um, at two years, the arms started to really separate with um, Dara RVD around 89% of a progression-free survival rate at 36 months, and RVD only without Dara, 82%. And here you can see an update of the GRIFFIN trial, which showed that there's improved progression-free survival with DARA-RVD across most clinically relevant subgroups, including the ISS stage, um, the age of the patient, also renal dysfunction. And what is interestingly, in most of the cytogenetic risk groups, standard risk and high risk, you see also a benefit where DARA was added to RVD, except for the really high-risk patients with two or more high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, And that goes back to our discussion, and Dr. Patel mentioned that already, uh, what is really the benefit of daratumumab in the super high-risk patients. So let's look for another study, the GMMG HD7 trial, in which another CD38 monoclonal antibody, isatoximab, was added to VRD. You can also see that it enhances the response and the MRD negativity in those patients. So by adding isatoximab to VRD, the MRD negativity increased from 35.6% to 50.1%. Looking for the response rate, you also see that the VGPR increased significantly from 60.5% to 77.3%. So is there a rule for CD38 maintenance? So here are the data from the Cassiopeia Part Two trial that showed a clinical benefit of daratumumab maintenance listed as one of the recommended maintenance option for transplant candidates by the NCCN guidelines. And On the left-hand side, you can see the blue curve is observation and the red curve is daratumumab-treated patients, showing that patients who received the daratumumab maintenance treatment did better in terms of progression-free survival. But look at the right side. You know, this is a very interesting curve and it shows that patients receiving daratumumab maintenance do very well but you also see that patients who receive daratumumab VTD without daratumumab in the maintenance setting do also very well. What we observe here is that patients at one point of their treatment need daratumumab because in the orange curve, the patients did not receive DARA during the induction therapy and did not receive DARA during the maintenance, showing that clearly there is a need for DARA at one point in your treatment in order to obtain the maximum outcome. So let's look for the NCCN guidelines for newly diagnosed myeloma patients who are not transplant candidates. So the preferred and recommended regimen is bortezomib, lenalidomide, DEX, so a triplet, also daratumumab, lenalidomide, and DEX. Other recommended regimens are carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and DEX, ixazomib, lenalidomide, and DEX, or daratumumab, bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone, or daratumumab, cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and DEX. So here are the most important trials to supporting this decision. So you can see that daratumumab triplets and doublets continue to show really high efficacy also in the non-transplant settings. On the left-hand side, data from the Maya trial, you see that in blue, those are the patients treated with Dara, and DEX compared to the patients shown here in green with Revlimid and DEX. And there is a significant increase in the 60 months progression-free survival that increases from around 30% to over 50%, so a very nice outcome. On the right-hand side, you see the progression-free survival data from the Alcyon trial. So after a median follow-up of 78, 78.8 months, DARA-VMP continues to improve versus VMP. And I have to say, the VMP arm looks a little disappointing with only a median PFS of 7.8% at 72 months. So here are some take-home thoughts. Griffin and other data supported the use of CD38 quads in transplant-eligible patients. For the non-transplant-eligible patients, Maya supports the use of a CD38 triplet as a primary therapy. And the high-risk features should not preclude the selection of antibody-based platforms, And I think in this setting, adding CD38 to KRD backbone could be useful. The CD38 maintenance can also be considered as an alternative at this point, but more robust evidence is needed for firmer recommendations. So what do my colleagues think? Any other thoughts?
1: Thanks, Dr. Lynch. I think that's a great summary of where we are, and I think these... Take home thoughts if you apply them will really help your patients do very well. Having covered the newly diagnosed setting, let's move to antibody platforms in the relapsed and refractory setting. And once again, we'll start with a discussion. And here we've got Alex, who's a 72 year old patient who had RISS stage two myeloma and some underlying coronary disease did get RVD induction, and then transplant, had LEN maintenance that led to a complete remission, but then had progression noted after three years, which is a little bit earlier than we would have hoped for in somebody with what looks like standard risk disease. So let's look at these questions. Is the patient lenalidomide refractory? Dr. Patel, what would you think here?
3: So yes, I think if if they're on LEN the entire time um, at progression, uh, I, I do consider them refractory. Even if it's a lower dose, um, we, we we would consider refractory.
1: And would you ever just tweak the LEN dose or add a little DEX or something like that? Or would you just go full bore with a triplet here?
3: Yeah, I think um, most of the time we would say we, we need to switch therapy. We have so many other options now that getting them into a deeper response and I don't want them to have clinical relapse, um, you know, or worsening clinical relapse with symptoms. So I I would do whatever I can to get their disease better controlled.
2: Yeah, And Bob, I think we we really tried, you know, that option to look for an early biochemical relapse and then increase from 10 to 15, 25. Um, I think it might work for really a limited time, but my experience is not very good with just increasing the dose of lenalidomide. So I usually also stop at this point and consider the patient LEN refractory.
1: I fully agree with you on that. Dr. Zonder, would a CD38 triplet here be an option with either K or POM? Would you prefer pomalidomide or carfilzomib here as a partner?
4: Well, I think a a CD38 triplet would be my first choice in this situation. Uh, And we have uh, good data to support uh, a triplet with either uh, of these agents, um, you know, randomized data uh, that actually supports uh, is the, supports the use of each, although um, not compared head to head, of course. And and then there's actually also data about uh, uh, carfilzomib and pomalidomide uh, and DERA carfilzomib and pomalidomide, some of which has only been presented in preliminary form, but. Um, yeah, you know, this this is kind of a very common discussion. You know, with, with with a with a patient where you say, you know, like these these are the three important drugs you 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 haven't had that you could use in second line, and the question is, you know, w- which are we going to pick? Which which two? All three? That that's that's a very very common conversation.
1: Yep, great, Dr. Lynch. Comorbidities would they change what partner you pick for a CD thirty eight, and in particular? Either neuropathy or, in this case, coronary disease, would those make you pick one or the other as a partner for CD thirty eight?
2: Yeah, uh, it would influence my decision. So, for instance, in patients um, who have an overlap with amyloidosis, sorry to come back to amyloidosis, but um, or who have already pre-existing congestive heart failure, it might be difficult to use, you know, an image for them. Also, difficult to use um, cafilsovnip for those patients. Um, so I would be more careful. Patients with pre-existing neuropathy, I tried to avoid Velcate. So there are a couple of factors that would kind of you know, go into the decision.
1: And Dr. Patel, if the patient had molecularly high-risk disease, would you go with POM or K or would that not influence what you do?
3: I think if they have ultra high-risk disease, um, kind of relating to what Dr. Zandra said, if if it wasn't three years, um, if it was less than three years, let's say, we actually have used the quadruplet to, to really knock this disease down because we know those patients don't do well. Um, but I think if it was, you know, 17P, I, I do, I prefer PIs, um, and I would try to convince the patient to go through carfilzomib. Um, But again, there's some patients that might not be able to do that for different um, comorbidity reasons, and I think pomalidomide would work too then.
1: All right. Very good. Well, here's an overview of the current NCCN guidelines for early relapse defined as one to three prior lines of therapy. And you can see compared to some years ago when we had a couple category one recommendations, now we have a whole table full of them. So the good news is you have lots of options. The bad news is you have lots of options and sometimes it can be tough to know which triplet is better, but there are options for both bortezomib refractory and lenalidomide refractory patients. That can be very helpful. And in general, you've got CD38 antibodies with either immunomodulatory drugs or proteasome inhibitors, as you saw. And you've got your choice of imids, including LEN or POM, your choice of proteasome inhibitors, including bortezomib, carfilzomib, and ixazomib, and also your choice of CD38 antibodies with either daratumumab or isatuximab. Let's just briefly go through some of the data these are dara plus kd data from the candor study in the top part of this slide and you can see the median progression free survival improved from 15 months for kd to almost 30 months for KDD, with a hazard ratio of 0.59, meaning a 41% improvement. And from the Apollo study, which was POMDEX versus sub-Q DARA and POMDEX, the POMDEX was only 6.9 months, with again an almost doubling in the PFS to 12.4 months. DPD is effective even in patients who have previous exposure to lenalidomide, which kind of fits with the patient that we presented earlier. You can see here that if you're relapsed or refractory, it does make a difference. But even those who are refractory have an excellent median progression-free survival to darapamalidomide and dexamethasone. I mentioned that there's another anti CD38 antibody which is Isatuximab and we have similar data with similar designs from that drug you can see in the top you've got Isatuximab with pomdex with an almost doubling in the progression free survival and then in the bottom panel you can see Isatuximab with carfilzomib and dex where KD was 19 months and the triplet had not yet been reached in median progression-free survival. But the hazard ratios, as you can see, are fairly similar to daratumumab. And so, of course, it's not fair to compare across the trials, but it looks like the improvement that you get with a CD38 is similar whether you use DARA or isatuximab, And the main difference right now is that DARA is available subcutaneously as well as IV, whereas isatuximab for now is only available IV, although it is coming in a sub-Q format these are some data from ikema which is addition of Isatuximab to carfilzomib dex in patients with early and late relapse and you can see that there are benefits in both of these situations and if you do give cd38 antibodies you're probably very experienced with them already but these are just some general practical points First of all, these drugs are very well tolerated and compared to the huge benefit that you get from adding them, the added side effects are relatively small. You can get some hypogammaglobulinemia and in some cases IVIG may be appropriate. Certainly treating infections is important and sub dara has had really a low level of infusion slash injection associated reactions. There are premedications for Dara that are recommended as well as isetuximab. If you do use pomalidomide, you can have some cytopenias with neutropenia. And of course the carfilzomib combos can give you some issues with blood counts. And do keep in mind that patients will probably not have optimal immunoglobulin responses to COVID or other vaccines while they're on these therapies because they do knock down not just the abnormal plasma cells, but also the normal ones. And just for your reference, here is a slide that shows some of the recommended premedication regimens for both IV and sub DARA as well as for IV esotuximab. Also of note, these are often needed only in this large format for the first cycle. And if patients tolerate them well, they often can be pared down a little bit in later cycles. So these are some take-home thoughts from me, and then we can open it up to the panel for discussion Certainly in the relapsed refractory setting, I think use of an anti-CD38 antibody-based triplet is the standard of care for second line in patients that are not progressing on a DARA-based maintenance. Although all of the studies that you saw with CD38 antibodies had patients that were CD38 antibody naive, I personally think that if you've given either DARA or very soon esotuximab during induction and then stopped, you can probably retreat with a CD38 antibody-based triplet as long as the disease was sensitive before and not refractory. And I think both of these drugs are really excellent examples of antibodies in this class But just briefly, it's worth mentioning that there are other anti-CD38 antibodies that are in development, including some that may have enhanced immunomodulatory properties and others that may have enhanced binding. And since CD38 expression tends to be preserved, we may in the future be able to use anti-CD38s in multiple and perhaps even consecutive lines of therapy. Thoughts from folks? Any differences of opinion compared to my summation?
2: Well, no differences in opinion. Um, Just to point out uh, data from the Eikima trial. If I remember correctly, they had a relatively high number of patients with high-risk cytogenetics. And I found it interesting that I had a relative good response rate and PFS in those patients who had high-risk cytogenetics. So maybe it's interesting in the future to look a little bit deeper into the combination isatuximab with carfilzolib for the high-risk patients. I found it interesting data.
1: You're right. It's a good point that you make. And actually, they've published some retrospective studies suggesting that for 1Q-amplified patients, isatuximab may be especially effective. I think we ultimately would want to see prospective randomized validation of that, but it may be something to keep in mind. Dr. Patel, Dr. Zonder, any other thoughts?
3: I think this is, yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said here. And I'm I'm excited that hopefully CD38 is our CD20, that we can just use it with everything.
4: I, um, I, I think the data about combining CD38 antibodies with carfilzomib particularly is uh, very compelling. And, you know, um, the, the choice between what you're going to pair the antibody with, I think, is going to come down to a lot of um, subtleties and, 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 and patient preference, um, maybe just feasibility, transportation, uh, frailty, uh, may uh, ultimately determine, you know, which uh, which which agent you use. And I think going back to the original, one of the original questions you asked at the beginning of this segment about, you know, uh, escalating lenalidomide, uh, maybe adding some DEX, I think, um, you know, uh, the data that we saw here on pomalidomide, you know, if if there's a patient who is inclined to stay on a regimen that's overall similar to what they were on, uh, the, the data we saw certainly suggests that modifying, you know, across IMIDs, you know, from lenalidomide uh, to pomalidomide would be a better option, uh, almost certainly, than just escalating
1: lenalidomide. I agree with all of that. Well, thank you for that great discussion. And let's move on to our next section, which is entitled BCMA Antibodies, the Current Clinical Experience. And as before, we're going to have a patient to help guide the discussion. This time we've got Barbara, who's a 74-year-old woman with pentarefractory myeloma. You can see diagnosed at baseline with IgG lambda, RISS stage 3, and normal cytogenetics. Gets Cyborg-D with a VGPR, apparently is not a transplant candidate, doesn't have a long benefit, and then switches over to Darolendex Lendex with a VGPR that's much more long-lasting, then at progression gets elotuzumab pomdex for only a few months and then carfilzomib endex for an even shorter period of time. So let's go through the questions here and we'll start with Dr. Lynch. Would you think that this patient requires immediate therapy and if so, given the prior CD38 exposure as well as what looks like refractoriness, would a BCMA targeted option be the best choice?
2: Yeah. So this that history, I think biologically, the patient clearly pre- represents in our high risk patients. So we see that some of the patients, despite they have normal cytogenetics, biologically they behave like high risk patients, and I think this the short duration of response of you know, POM-dex, four months and then CARDEX, you know, 3.5 months, I probably would treat the patient as soon as possible. And at this point, you know, this four-layer primes of treatment, I absolutely would consider BCMA option as my choice.
1: Yeah, and I think the short duration of response with each line is also concerning. Dr. Zonder, would a BCMA bispecific be reasonable here given the potential for delay if you want to get a CAR-T, which may be available only several months down the road?
4: Yeah, I mean, the um, the recently approved bispecific does have the advantage of being an, an immediate off-the-shelf uh, option. Um, so uh, it, it eliminates two uh, sort of stop points in the process, right? So there's we, we, we know about the manufacturing lag once the cells are collected and the time uh, that it takes to have those cells modified, expanded, and sent back. But there's, there's also that sort of, I think, well-known wait to get to the front door to even get the cells collected because the, the manufacturing slots remain limited at this point. And so there's, there's waiting before phoresis and there's waiting after phoresis. And the vast majority of patients uh, getting uh, BCMA-targeted CAR-Ts right now need bridging therapy of some sort. Um, So a a BCMA would would be a great option. I I guess the other, I mean, you know, Selenexor would be another drug you could use. But based on this patient's treatment history, there's not an obvious partner for Selenexor, and Selenexor dex by itself has a fairly low response rate compared to the the available BCMA bispecific. So to me, that falls behind uh, BCMA therapy.
1: And then Dr. Patel, given these delays in the CAR-T, would you ever consider giving an off-the-shelf bispecific to BCMA first, sort of as a bridging or temporizing maneuver, and then do CAR-T later?
3: Yeah, I think these are fantastic questions that we probably still need a little bit more data on. Um, I am careful about, you know, saying that we should do CAR-T right after a BCMA CAR-T right after BCMA by specific. Um, The reason being is that we, we, we know that BCMA is not necessarily lost for most of these patients. But there are some point mutations and other things that can happen with the antigen, um, even of a dimming for a little while. Um, and with the T-cell redirection, most of these patients have exhausted T-cells to so try to make CAR-T right after, I think is, is going to be a little difficult. And we've seen some manufacturing failures because of that. Um, but I do think that there's probably going to be ways where we can, you know, sp- have time in between, maybe six months, we don't know exactly, um, or do something different that can help those T cells come back up. Um, but at this point, I think it's just whatever my patient needs, I need to get it to them. And, you know, what Dr. Zander said, if I can't get the patient through apheresis, through bridging to that CAR T infusion, I'm doing them a disservice and having an off the shelf is perfect. Um, and we have all these other new targets that are going to come down the road too, so...
4: I, if I could just add to that, um, your, your point about um, the therapy you select now might affect your ability, you know, possibly affecting your ability uh, to... Uh, uh, Fres T cells uh, later. Bendamustine, you know, is another uh, off off-label uh, uh, option that people might consider in this sort of setting, and that also might make it harder to collect the T cells later. So for, for similar reasons, so got to be careful about that. I, I do think functionally, it sometimes is going to come down to it's not all is it is it a BCMI bis- bispecific now followed by CAR T is it it ends up functionally becoming a choice between, you know, are you going down one path or the other?
3: Perfect. Well, thank you, guys. Um, So, I think this has been a great discussion so far, and immunotherapy in myeloma um, is really, really exciting. So, looking at, you know, some of our new BCMA-directed therapies that are um, available as standard of care, um, as you can see, these are mostly all in really relapsed refractory patients, so greater than four lines um, for, for most of these. And belantamab, mafidotin, I'll talk really quickly about, um, since it is a, our antibody drug conjugate. Um, and then of course, idacaptogene, viclusil, siltacaptogene, otolucil, rr Ts. We won't talk too much about that, but just maybe a little bit about how to pick patients. Um, and then teclistamab, which we are all very excited that we finally have it as a standard of care for our patients who've been waiting on car um, and unable to get BCMA therapy. So we'll, we'll discuss that. And of course, as Dr. Zonder mentioned earlier, um, there is selenex or dexamethasone for certain patients as well. Okay. So about, um, you know, the DREAM studies. So of course, we had belantamab mafidotin that in the pivotal phase two study at that 2.5 milligrams per kilogram um, iv Q3-week dosing, which was great dosing for um, some of our patients, had about a 31% response rate. Um, what was impressive is that for the patients who responded, duration of response could be up to you know 12 months or so. Um, however, the keratopathy and other things that made it a little bit difficult to give, um, we were learning how to do that. But then, of course, the confirmatory study with the DREAM3, which was the um, um, randomized study of belantamab versus pom um Showed that the PFS was 11.2 months for belamaf uh, versus seven months for POMDEX. However, the hazard ratio was 1.03, so um, didn't meet the endpoint, um, and therefore um, the belantamab um, right now is actually on hold and and um, you know coming off the market. Um, hopefully, well, there's some other studies in combination though that um, are also randomized studies that will um, hopefully bring this back to market for those patients that you know um, actually can benefit. So then coming to, um, again, the exciting piece, uh, the bispecific antibodies, um, really, this is, you know, the engagement of T cells to malignant myeloma cells that have BCMA, um, and basically it redirects these T cells and causes lysis of multiple myeloma cells. Um, there's different forms of bispecific antibodies, including um, bites and uh, duobody technology. Um, I think there's over 35 different bispecifics being studied right now, and all of them have a little bit something different in terms of binding versus um, other parts of that bispecific. So exciting times um, to learn all about this. Um, and then coming to teclistamab, uh, the off-the-shelf T-cell redirecting bispecific antibody that is the first uh, to come to market. So it binds CD3 on T cells and then BCMA on plasma cells. So I tell my patients it's like handcuffing the two together, um, but then it also you know, causes T cell activation um, and then lysis of those myeloma cells. Um, and the data uh, was initially from the Majestic One study. And what they found was that the phase two dosing for teclistamab monotherapy of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, it is sub-Q and it's weekly. Um, and it does have a stepped up step up dosing of 0.06 and then 0.3 milligrams per kilogram in that first week. And this is to try to help decrease cytokine release syndrome. And so the trial uh, for Majestic one um, again, these were triple-class exposed patients, um, had to have had more than three prior lines of therapy, and had to have had uh, triple-class exposed, um, you know, including cd 38 pi imids And these patients could not have prior BCMA therapy. I'll show you data for some patients who did have prior BCMA therapy where we can talk about sequencing. Um, again, there's step-up dosing and then weekly sub-Q at 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And on this study, it was continued at, until progression of disease. So there's some, discussion, some thoughts about, you know, continuing until progression versus um, if there's fixed duration in the near future. Response rate, single agent, 63%. Um, so again, thinking about Zelinexor, Daratumumab, when they were approved, was around 30%. Belamaf we talked about with 31%. So 63% as a single agent is pretty impressive um, with a median duration of response of 18.4 months and MRD negativity of 20, almost a quarter of patients were MRD negative. Um, And then looking at the depth, um, again, almost 40% of patients had a CR or better. And looking at PFS, so again, median PFS, 11.3 months. Um, You know, we saw that mammoth study before where um, most of these patients don't do very well, um, and this almost doubles that PFS and overall survival of 18.3 months. So coming to the practical points, how to give this to our patients in the real world and really looking at safety. Um, I think CRS has not been um, our big issue. Most of these patients, the way we look at it is the lymphoma patients with CAR T have sort of the most aggressive CRS and ICANS. Our myeloma patients are sort of a step down from that. And then our bispecific patients are a step down from that. So again, most of these patients who, de- who do get CRS um, is mostly grade one, so 50%, and then 20% that got grade two, um, but not really any major grade three or four events. Um, and same thing with neurotoxicity. Um, you know, 14% of patients in total, but really five that had ICANs and most of the other issues are headaches and, and lethargy and tremor. Um, and most of the CRS um, resolved and, and was transient. Um, and again, the, the neurotoxicity, um, all ICANs events were grade one, two and fully resolved. And uh, none of these um, were reasons to have to actually stop treatment or um, dose reduce. And so then um, about sequencing, so I think there's been great uh, retrospective studies that have been published recently looking at if a patient gets a bispecific, uh, BCMA bispecific therapy and they relapse, what works best next? And here, the study looked at, I think, 115 patients and about 19 patients got uh, a bispecific, again, right after, or a CAR T-cell. So they're looking at T-cell redirection in general. Um, and the top um, graph on the, the right shows that for T-cell redirection versus other, which could be any other chemotherapy regimens that we use, you can see this big difference of 28.9 versus 2.6, um, you know, median uh, PFS, which is pretty impressive, um, and at the bottom, it it looks at CAR T in orange versus bispecifics in the dark blue. And again, um, you know, shows that you could potentially do a CAR T small numbers, but you know, there are patients that you can potentially do a CAR T after bispecific. Why we need more information. Um, and then looking at cohort C. So this this was the data I was really excited about that patients who have had a prior ADC or CAR T BCMA directed, then um, then they got the teclistamab on this cohort. The response rates are a little bit lower. Again, these are not, you know, these are not randomized um, data in in one trial, but 64% in the original Majestic. But this cohort, it was about 55, you know, 53% response rate. So still much better than other things that we have available as single agent. Um, And I think in the swimmers plot, you can see that there's definitely some patients that um, have done really, really well. Um, I think the bigger thing is the PFS, and we're noticing that when you do these therapies, you do bispecifics post ADC or CAR-T, you're actually seeing a, a decent PFS still, too. And then I'll, just a quick thing about immune fitness. So we know that patients who do better um, with uh, Teclistomab and, and bispecifics tend to have higher numbers of T-cells that are also um, in less uh, exhausted profiles, and they have less PD-1, TIM3, um, et cetera, and there's less Tregs in there. Um, baseline lab samples compared to um, um, patients who don't do as well in terms of response and PFS. And then the patients who maybe don't do as well, they they still get responses, but maybe not as well as everybody else. Um, Patients with high disease burden, so if they had ISS stage 3 or greater than 60% myeloma in their bone marrow or had an extramedullary disease, um, at least one um, uh, plasma cytoma that was extramedullary, their response rates were not as high. So then, this big question that comes up, you know, the BCMA CAR T versus BCMA advice specifics. Um, I think the one and done. If if we had access and didn't have access issues, and we could get the drug um, quickly uh, and didn't have to wait months for bridging, manufacturing, apheresis, all of that, all, the list of just getting onto a list. I think BCMA CAR Ts would be preferable. Um, we know that with real world data that it can be offered to patients that were considered too old or frail. That even patients who didn't fit. Um, the you know ideals of, of eligibility for clinical trials, um, but as Dr. Zander said, you know we really try to avoid alkylators and fludarabine um, and bendamustine type drugs before CAR T because it, it decreases your manufacturing uh, capabilities. I think for bi-specifics, again, the biggest thing that is off the shelf, um, it, it gives you more access. We can do this outside of, um, other hospitals in the future, right? Uh, outside of specialty hospitals that can do CAR T. Um, and I think also the fa- fact that we can give it to patients who get CAR T, but then relapse. We, we know that CAR T is not curing our patients. So I think, again, just, um, maybe a little bit different pa- patient population right now, but, but still, um, really exciting. And so in terms of, Take home thoughts on BCMA antibodies. Um, Bellomath, although currently uh, being withdrawn, um, with our prior experience, you know, this indicates that this agent is effective for certain patients. Um, it's non-immunotoxic approach, and especially frail, heavily pretreated myeloma patients. So hopefully um, trials like Dream 7 and 8 will lead to regulatory reappraisal. Um, you know, the approved BCMA CD3 bispecific antibody, we're excited, um, offers patients expanded access to BCMA therapy because it's off the shelf. Um, I will say infection management is the major thing we really have to look out for. Um, these patients are really relapsed refractory. And when we talked about DarA causing hypogamma globulinemia, BCMA does the same thing. So these patients can get neutropenic, Um, You're redirecting their T cells, and you're giving them um, um, hypogammaglobulinemia, so you have to really monitor them and and make sure we're giving them the best supportive care possible. Um, And use of tocilizumab is foundational for CRS management. Um, We do it through CAR-T, but for bispecifics as well, we are actually using TOSI to help manage um, and decrease those CRS events.
1: Well, thank you very much for that great presentation and overview. Just one quick question. Would you see a time when ADCs would be used for patients with T-cell exhaustion and a lot of T-regs if those patients don't have good outcomes with bispecifics, as you've shown?
3: No, I completely agree. I, I think that's the whole point that all these patients, um, these therapies are, you have to give it at the right time. So maybe a patient that could have gotten it earlier later down the road wouldn't be able to get it because their T cells aren't going to be as good. And I think having those other options either before or after um, are really, really important. So yes, I think patients could get all three potentially in their you know, um, lifetime of needing myeloma therapy.
2: I think the ocular toxicity is manageable. Um, and again, I hope that it will come to, back to market for a subset of patients.
1: I agree, and thank you for those comments. So let's wrap up our overall discussion with this last section, which is the new wave of BCMA and non-BCMA antibodies, And we'll go back to our case of Barbara, who you'll remember was four lines of prior therapy, including a proteasome inhibitor initially, then DARA and LEN, then ELO and POM, and then CAR and DEX. And what we're going to address in this section is whether the patient could get other BCMA by specifics that are in development or if a non-BCMA bi-specific or other novel approach would be appropriate. And I think since we know the answer to both of these is yes, let's just turn things over to Dr. Zonder and he'll be able to run us through the data.
4: Okay, thank you Bob uh, so much for um, uh, the good introduction. Uh, I'm going to go through a list of several different BCMA by CD3 bispecific antibodies that are currently in development. I'm going to be giving a broad overview uh, of of these agents. I'm going to start with uh, L-renatumab, which was uh, studied as part of the magnetism one uh, study. Uh, This was uh, a bispecific given um, uh, studied in a dose escalation fashion. uh, by using a subcutaneous uh, route of administration, um, there were um, priming cohorts that were dosed differently, uh, but then there were expansion uh, cohorts. Uh, uh, there was an expansion cohort where patients were uh, treated with uh, fixed dosing, and um, that was eventually given every week. In this study, as I mentioned, uh, this was dose escalation. So l was given uh, sub-Q doses, 80 to 1,000 micrograms per kilogram, initially either weekly or every two weeks. The overall response rate seen uh, on this study was um, 64% among 55 patients receiving uh, uh, this bispecific specific at a dose of greater than 215 mics per kilogram. Uh, and um, Uh, Of these, and and 35% of the patients, uh, 19 out of uh, 55 achieved a CR or better, as shown here. So uh, here we have a swimmer's plot showing the responses of all patients on the magnetism uh, 1 L-renatumab study. Uh, And we see that uh, many of the responses were quite durable. Uh, Among these patients, uh, there were 13 who had received prior BCMA-directed therapy uh, and seven of these thirteen or fifty four percent achieved a response, which is encouraging in this study as uh, in other studies i 'll mentioned and in uh, and as we saw with um there was a, a premedication strategy and a, a priming strategy. Um, uh, used to uh, uh, lower the risk of uh, cytokine release, uh, and this did successfully limit um, the uh, um, uh, limit cytokine release to almost entirely uh, lower grade events. Uh, grade one, two, two thirds of the events seen were actually uh, grade one events, and there were no events greater than grade two. I'm going to move on to another agent. This is um, limboseltamab. Previously called R E G N five four five eight, it's a different B C M A by C D three bispecific antibody. Uh, this was uh, assessed in a phase one two study, the Linker MM one uh, study. Uh, these were patients who progressed on at least uh, progressed on or after at least three prior lines of therapy that included a proteasome inhibitor, uh, an imid, and an anti C D thirty eight antibody, uh, or. Uh, disease that's double refractory to a proteasome uh, inhibitor uh, and an IMID uh, and progressed on or after an anti-CD38 antibody. Um, In the initial uh, presentation of the phase one data, we saw impressive response rates across uh, all uh, dosing levels. Uh, There did seem to be a bit of a dose response uh, uh, association here. The overall response rate on the study was 51%. But if you uh, look at uh, patients who are dosed uh, with doses between 200 and 800 milligrams uh, weekly, um, you saw an overall response rate of 75% with a, uh, uh, 86% of responders achieving at least a VGPR and 43% achieving a CR or better. Uh, there were patients um, who were tested for MRD negativity, uh, and that was seen in some patients. Um, here we um, have uh, updated data from the Phase two expansion uh, presented by Dr. Buma at ASH uh, this last year. Uh, this is uh, a swimmer's plot of patients who are treated at the recommended Phase two dose of 200 milligrams, the overall response rate seems to be holding up compared to what we saw in the phase one uh, dose escalation portion, 64% overall, uh, with a 45% likelihood of at least a VGPR. And again, very durable responses, with some patients having responses um, lasting um, uh, into the uh, two-year range um, at the far end. Um, uh, As with other bispecifics that we've discussed, um, cytokine release was um, seen. Um, the, um, the overall rate of cytokine release syndrome did seem to be a little bit lower perhaps than with the other uh, bispecifics, um, 37%. Um, and uh, almost all cases uh, were grade uh, one and two. Um, there was some neurotoxicity seen. Uh, uh, f- about 5% of patients had potential ICANNs events Um, but um, only uh, 1% had grade 3 ICANs uh, or or greater. Um, And uh, as would be predicted based on our prior discussion and the effects of uh, BCMA-targeted therapy on um, uh, both um, uh, cytopenias, neutropenia specifically, and um, hypogammaglobulinemia, we did see infections, including a 29% incidence of uh, greater than or uh, equal to or greater than grade 3. Um, here we have a table showing multiple other BCMA by CD3 by specifics and developments. Really, we have a wave of these agents uh, coming. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them in detail. They differ in terms of their uh, affinity for BCMA, uh, for CD3, their route of administration, their schedule, um, uh And it remains to be seen whether one of these or one of the other ones that we've previously discussed emerges uh, as superior to the others. Um, The uh, data that we have so far, to be honest, seems to show pretty similar response rates and pretty similar overall toxicity profiles Of 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 the agents that data has been presented, you know, for which we have um, uh, data presented. So at at the present time, there there is not an obvious clinical uh, uh, front runner among these agents. Um, I briefly want to talk about um, bispecific platforms beyond BCMA. There's a couple of uh, important uh, bispecifics we ought to talk about. Uh, One of them is talquetamab. This has been uh, presented at ASH and then uh, almost simultaneously in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Chari. Um, this is data from the Monumental 1 trial of telquetimab. Uh, this is a bispecific with a different target, GPR C5D and uh, CD3. Uh, uh, and in this study, um, uh, we saw. Uh, at two different dose levels uh, tested. Um, and again, this this was studied intravenously and subcutaneously, different schedules. We're showing data here for um, sub-Q dosing, either 0.4 milligrams per kilogram weekly or twice that dose, sub-Q, every two weeks. And we see very similar overall response rates of about 73%, including uh a, a, Uh, the majority of patients, uh, 59 and 57% of patients achieving a VGPR or better. And responses were seen uh, in uh, both groups in patients who are triple-class refractory and pentadrug refractory. And the median duration of response for those patients achieving these higher quality uh, CR or greater responses hasn't been reached yet as of the latest reporting. We have a, a bit of data about tilquetimab in patients who received prior uh, T-cell redirection therapy. Um, here we have um, uh, 51 patients and an overall response rate of 63% uh, after, um, with a median duration of response that was 12.7 months. Uh, that um, response rate seemed to be a bit higher for the subset of patients who had had prior CAR-T therapy and a bit lower for patients who had had prior bispecific therapy. But even the 44% compares favorably uh, to other agents, uh, other platforms uh, that could be used in this arm, uh, or I'm sorry, in this uh, setting. Uh, so uh, very encouraging data. Uh, and the safety profile um, was not different uh, c- compared to what we saw in uh, the other patients who hadn't had prior uh, T-cell redirection therapy. Um, the other bispecific I want to mention is Savastamab. Its targets are FCRH5 and CD3, um, otherwise mechanistically um, the same, just a different uh, tumor target. And we have data here from a phase one dose escalation and dose expansion study, uh, evaluating the efficacy of Q3-week IV dosing. Um, and um, step-up dosing was used, uh, as we have with other uh, products in development, to uh, mitigate the risk of CRS early. Uh, and we see here, again, impressive response rates um, In younger patients, a 58% uh, overall response rate and a virtually identical overall response rate uh, in patients um, who are older than age 65. Um, So uh, extremely encouraging data. Um, So take-home thoughts. Uh, As I said, there's a a whole wave of BCMA by CD3 bispecific antibodies in rapid and competitive development with one another. Um, Based on the evidence so far, the main difference between the products has to do with um, uh, properties uh, of the antibody and how they bind the the respective targets uh, and uh, the routes of administration and the schedule, um, but clinically hard to distinguish. Um, And we have newer immunotherapies, um, specifics with newer targets that I mentioned, and actually there's the, we we heard data uh, at ASH this year of a CAR, uh, about a CAR T cell uh, that uh, has the same target as telquetumab. So um, you know it's the, these newer targets are definitely validated as clinically relevant, uh, and the high response rates we're seeing with these newer with these newer post BCMA agents I think is just going to open up uh, new doors uh, for um, ongoing research and opportunities for patients to have continued benefit. So thanks.
1: Well, thanks very much, Dr. Zonder. That's a great overview. Uh, I'll ask Dr. Patel a quick question: Is there any possibility to combine bispecifics or CAR T cells against two different targets? I know there's a little bit of data. Maybe you could briefly tell us.
3: Yeah, that's my dream come true. Um, <laughs> if we could do allogeneic transplants, multi multi antigen, you know, but without with your own cells. Um, I would love it. I could retire then. Um, but I, I do think that there's a couple of trials looking at CD19 BCMA CARs against different antigens. Um, I think we we still need a little bit more information on can we use a bispecific for bridging then CAR T after we've collected the cells, or can we use a bispecific as consolidation after CAR T um, rather than sequencing more of in one line? Um, and I think... Uh, I hope so, especially earlier lines of therapy. I think it's harder in relapse refractory patients where they have more cytopenias and things like that with CAR-T. But I'm hopeful in earlier lines, um, we're gonna actually be able to do that and maybe finally cure some patients too.
1: Well, here are some final thoughts for you at home about this overview, and we can have a brief discussion if anyone disagrees with them, but I think it's fair to say that the CD38 monoclonals have really been a tremendous addition to our myeloma toolkit and have really improved progression-free and overall survival with only a small increase in toxicity. We have one BCMA-targeted adc and though it's for now being withdrawn, I think many of us are optimistic that it may still come back. And there are other ADCs that are under study. And of course, we know about CAR T cells, but there are also bispecifics to BCMA, one of which we now have approved, teclistamab, And there are others that are coming as well as bispecifics against other targets and many of these are now being moved earlier as well from relapsed refractory disease in the late line setting to earlier lines and maybe even in newly diagnosed disease, where we hope that in part because of better T-cell health in the patients, they may have an even more tremendous improvement in outcomes. I'd like to again thank Dr. Lynch, Dr. Patel, and Dr. Zander for taking time to review all of these wonderful data, and I hope that this will be of value to you in management of your myeloma patients in your practice. Thank you again.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DFQ860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.